This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 27th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And with us tonight is Cornell West, philosopher, professor, movie star, podcaster, video game developer, recording artist, and author of books such as Race Matters, Democracy Matters, Black Prophetic Fire, Keeping Faith, Prophesied Deliverance, Hope on a Tightrope, The American Evasion of Philosophy, The Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought, Living Out Loud, and a co-author of many, many more. He describes himself as a blues man in the life of the mind and a jazz man in the world of ideas. Cornell West, welcome to the Writers' Symposium. Oh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be here. Blessing, blessing, blessing to be here. Yes, indeed. What a blessing. What a blessing, I'm telling you. Oh, I'm telling you. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Lord, Lord, Lord. So, you say, you say in Prophesied Deliverance, I remain a card-carrying Kierkegaardian with a strong Chekhovian twist and a Marxist-informed radical Democrat with a tragic comic sense of life. We only have an hour. <laughs> but, but why Kierkegaard? Why Chekhov? Why Marx? Why tragic comic? Go. Wow. Boy, that's a beautiful question. It's a beautiful question. But let me begin with a spirit of humility and fallibility and just recognize that what I was trying to say in that sentence was that I am who I am because somebody loved me. And somebody cared for me. And that I would never, ever have a higher honor other than being a, a disciple of a Palestinian Jew named Jesus, to, to, being the second son of Irene and Clifton West. I'll never be the human beings that they were. You see, so they may not have read Kierkegaard's text. They may have heard about Chekhov a bit, but they understood that to be human is to put on the whole arm of a love of truth and the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak, to love beauty and beauty must wrestle with tear and in the face of trauma to be a wounded healer. So when I went to Harvard and Princeton and other places, I got intellectually equipped to come to terms with, to help improve, refine, but most importantly, allow me to stay situated in what I learned on the chocolate side of Sacramento. You see, what I learned in Shiloh Baptist Church under Reverend Willie P. Cook and Deacon Hinton, my head of the deacon board, and Sarah Ray was my vacation Bible school teacher. And it's true because they taught us that if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. Kierkegaard 
left some heaven behind. He was a powerful Protestant and Lutheran. And there's some truths in Protestantism about faith and hope and love and a deep suspicion of what Augustine called cupidity, which is not just love of money, but you're reading Hugo of St. Victor's. It's a love of the dominant ways of the world, of status and wealth and position and spectacle, idolatrous. That's Kierkegaard. Marx, atheist, Jewish born, grew up Protestant. You know, Marx wrote an essay when he was 17 years old called Jesus Christ Liberated the World for the Poor. Well, see, I resonate with that with my Jewish brother who converted to Protestantism and became an atheist. <laughs> He's got a compassion for the least of these, echoes of the 25th chapter of Matthew. He's got a concern for those who have been pushed to the margins. And he's actually building on the genius of Hebrew scripture that we thank our precious Jewish brothers and sisters. Spreading that hesed, that loving kindness, that steadfast love to the orphan and the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the persecuted, the subjugated, the enslaved, the occupied. No matter who they are, no matter what color, what gender, what sexual orientation, what national identity. You see, So you got Kierkegaard. You got Marx and then Chekhov. Oh, Lord. Ooh, yeah, you've, that, you've, that, you've, that take a long time to get to Anton Chekhov. He is my intimate soul companion. He's a lover for you. Okay, okay I, I know this is an impossible thing to say, but quickly, why Chekhov? No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, you see, you, you got a high, high quality interlocutor here at this place. <laughs> Now, and then anyway, I must say, when you, when you said you were in the school of journalism, and given the practice of a lot of these journalists these days, you know, living in a little narrow careful, careful, careful. No, no, no. You a truth teller. You a truth teller. That it's a beautiful thing, whatever context you find yourself. Lawyer, doctor, pharmacist, plumber, journalist, so-called philosopher. We say. If you're not committed to quest for truth, goodness, and beauty, that shatters whatever the prevailing paradigms are in the spirit of one's own fallibility and humility. You see, then you got to check yourself. And that's part of our challenge these days. So when you say, why check off? I appreciate that question. I really do. <laughs> you still haven't answered it. I will. I will. I know. I know. You're right. You're right. Well, you see, Chekhov comes out of the rich tradition of Russian orthodoxy that says absolute compassion for everyone, absolute condemnation of no one. That's Anton Chekhov. Now, like James Baldwin, he went through the church. He was a wonderful choir boy and so forth, and he became an agnostic, but he would still go to church. He would see the magnificence passion enacted among our Russian brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church. And he would say, it's just too beautiful to be true. Jesus on that cross, all that love, the cowardliness of Peter and the disciples running out the money changes because he loved the poor, not because he hated the rich. He hated greed. He hated organized greed. He hated contempt. He had this love flowing. That's Chekhov. And students, 
especially the precious students here. Ooh, our high school students, I'm told. We got oh, we've school. got middle yeah. school students here. you got middle school students? And high school, yeah. Oh, yeah. if you get a chance tonight, you read Chekhov's The Student, 1894. It's his favorite short story. And he wrote short stories of 8,000 characters. But this story, it's only two and a half pages now. And I know Brother Ben, who I salute, and he's just so very kind to bring me, and Brother Montaigne as well, to study with uh, Walter Fluker is here as well. But you get a chance to read that the student and the ways in which it will connect you to the best of the past. Allow you to keep loving and fighting for something bigger than you, a beloved community in the present that authorizes a better future, but knowing in the end, very much like Samuel Beckett, try again, fail again, fail better. You're not going to create utopia. You're not going to create the kingdom of God on earth. But you can create something better. But you keep on the love train. <laughs> keep on the love train. That's awesome. <laughs> Speaking of short stories. Yes. You wrote one. You know that. I read it. Oh, my brother. About the day Duke Ellington died. Well, that's the first time I've been asked this question in my life. You're at the writer's symposium, I dude. came to the right place. Lord, I so, thought I had something going when I wrote that story. You know what I mean? But, but, my, but my question, I liked it. But my question is, why did you stop with just one short story? Well, it's only about you and a couple of others who had a chance to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, that's, that, that, I mean, that's part of it. You know what I mean? But no, I actually wrote a number of short stories. that I, 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 I wrote, I tried to write a novel as well, I... I was trying to be uh, uh, multidimensional in my calling and vocation, uh, trying to connect the life of the mind to uh, bearing witness to, to love and justice, trying to connect the love of truth to the truth of love so that I could somehow through literature speak to a broader crowd than being a, a narrow philosopher. And I wrote that, you know, when I was a... Uh, a graduate student in philosophy. You you even said you didn't want to write your PhD dissertation. You wanted to write literature instead. Well, I I thought about it and prayed on it, and then I came back to reality and recognized that. Uh, I mean, I sound like Marvin Gaye in the shower. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I said, no, no, I better not take that to the stage. <laughs> and so I better finish my dissertation, get me a job. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so, so. But my calling's the same. See, my calling's the same. My calling's the same today, and I'm going to be faithful unto death to that calling, which is following that Palestinian Jew named Jesus. So you've, you've written, but Jesus just got a whoop out there. You know, anyway, <laughs> you've, you have written, you've written for the more academic kind of audiences, and you've written for, Others, um, I'm just wondering, do you have a preference these days of who, who do you want to write for? It depends on what the context is and how I might be able to be a force for good given the gifts that God has given me to cultivate those gifts so that uh, if, it's, if it's more TV, if it's more radio, I might do another, another CD if I felt that was the case. You know what I mean? If I, could I hope you do. For good. It, yeah, it would depend, really. I mean, if Prince came back from the dead, we could continue. 
the way I did on the third album with Prince and I in the studio together. But it, it all depends on the situation, the context, and what the calling is. You know what I mean? What, what one's... Wait a second. You insulted Prince. How was that? You told him he was no Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, well, that wasn't an insult. That was the truth now. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't no insult. No, 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 no. But you're right. Oh, you got you've done so much homework. I love you. Though. But, but uh, no, but as you know, the context was Prince and I were, were like brothers. We traveled the world together, and uh, I just loved him so, and he loved me so. And, uh, and I just told him, I said, brother, you were genius, and you're one of the great artists of his generation. I said, but you ain't no Curtis Mayfield. And he, he jumped, you know, and then he gave me a hug. And I didn't know. Then he goes into the studio and makes the Curtis Mayfield album that just came out well, last born, year. Born, born to Die was written basically about that comment, wasn't it? No, absolutely. And I listened to Born to Die, and he, of course, he's smiling from the grave. He's Jehovah's Witness, brother, so that he, he's got his own theology about these things. Uh, 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 and I listened to Born to Die. It brought tears to my eyes, really, because uh, Prince's genius is just beyond description. And this is just a very important thing we learned from Kierkegaard's book, Works of Love. You got one love, and love is manifested in so many different ways, in so many different forms, so many different expressions and exemplifications. And so we can appreciate all those different expressions of the love in that way. Because, see, what I also told him was... Curtis Mayfield can't do some things you can do. And that's true for each and every one of us. You see? That's a good word. Each one of us. Yeah. It's like our fingerprint. That's your voice. That's your calling. Something for you to do nobody else can do. You see? And all of us have exactly the same value and significance in the eyes of a loving God. You see? Bad story. And Prince took that very, very seriously. So I don't want people to think I was putting him down. It was okay. just a loving description of a truth that may have been harmful at the moment. <laughs> all of us, all of us have moments in life like that, right? Oh. You've had moments like that, right? Oh, I'm so going to use that line. <laughs> I have so many opportunities to say that. <laughs> So, so in your memoir, uh, Living Out Loud, you describe as a child that you grew up with a whole lot of rage. And so here are some examples. For instance, you wouldn't stand, I, this isn't necessarily rage, but you wouldn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance when you were in elementary school? You were, yeah, yeah. You were Colin Kaepernick before there was Colin Kaepernick. And, and your teacher told you to stand. You said no. She smacked you, and you smacked her back? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Now, sinner that I am. Sinner that I am. But, of course, the reason was is that, uh, see, my precious mother grew up in Orange, Texas. Uh, she was born in Crawley. Her biological mother died on the steps of a white hospital. She had a pulled tooth and it was bleeding and they wouldn't touch her because she was a black woman. So she died on those steps at the age of 31 years old. My mother was two years old. And my grandfather was a uh, deacon, but also uh, 
uh, owner of a rifle. And he showed up with his rifle. And, and they ran him out of town, so he ended up in Orange, Texas. And then when I would go to Orange, Texas every summer, I had a great, great uncle who was part of World War I who got lynched in his military uniform. And the flag was around his body. So here, here I am, a young black brother, and I'm associating the flag with something real that's different than some of my other fellow citizens and other brothers and sisters. And others got a right to do that. Others got a right to do that. You know, you, you, you see the flag and say, oh, my God, my, my, my uncle died in, in Japan. Put your flag up. Your uncle is precious. He was courageous, fighting against fascism. Everybody got their own associations with things, you see. But there I was, 10 years old. She want me to stand up there and with a smile and act like my great uncle. No, no, I wasn't going to do that. Then when she hit me, I went into my Joe Frazier mode when I was wrong as I could be. I was wrong. I'm, I was wrong. Okay. No doubt about it. I'm a Christian, but not a pacifist today. So, you know, you got to watch yourself. But, uh, but, but not only that, but I was, uh, I was a thoroughgoing gangster. Talk about that. You would take the kids who had lunch money and take their money and give it to the kids who didn't. You were a Marxist before, before you even got into middle school. Well, it's probably more Robin Hood than Marxist, but, it, but that's true. I was, I was, you know, I believed in transfer of resources. Uh, but I, I, I think we need to do it in democratic means. I don't believe in coercion and force the way I was doing it on the ground on the chocolate side in Camellia Elementary School. That's exactly right. But then what happens is this little, I was a Negro then, this little Negro child with such rage and unbelievable uh, anger meets Jesus and becomes now a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. <laughs> they still there. The rage is still there. You're still Cornell. The anger is yeah. still there. Yeah. But I'm trying to channel it through love and justice, not hatred and revenge. That's the difference. That's a very important difference, you see, because I'm thoroughly convinced when Jesus went into the temple, he didn't go in there for Socratic dialogue. <laughs> he ran them out with cords. Right. But it was not out of hatred and revenge. You see, I learned in vacation Bible school, Christian hatred, where you hate the sin and still try to love the sinner. Well, you hate the domination and the oppression and exploitation. You hate the injustice, and that's rage. Our great Audrey Lord has taught us anger, a form of love. But once it spills over into a hatred of persons, I mean, I got in trouble with the, uh, the Charlottesville, you know, with my, uh, my sick white brothers. Uh, part of the neo-Nazi and the Ku Klux Klan and so forth and so on. And one of the brothers walked up to me. He said, you know, I noticed on television, I see you all the time and you calling everybody brother and you walk by here and you call me brother. I can't stand it. How come you call me brother? I said, one, I don't ask for your permission as to what I say and who I love. I'm a free Jesus-loving black man. You see? 
And the second thing is, I just want to tell you, brother. I say, Jesus died for you just like he died for me. And I'm going down with that truth. If you could choose to be the gangster hating me. And the irony was when we walked by some of the uh, neo-Nazis in the Ku Klux Klan, they listening to Motown. And I said, so you want to kill black people, kill me and going to listen to the music of my own tradition. Now, that's only in America. It really is. That's only in America. You know, you know one, of, one other thing about your rage is I was so impressed with how your parents responded to it, where you said uh, that they responded to your rage by giving you more books. In fact, they said, as I recall, they felt that if they kept you intellectually stimulated, the violence would fall by the wayside. And your mom would read poetry to you at night. Yes, she would. Ooh, yes, she did. Mm. But you got to keep in mind, brother, that was just on the mother's side. Mm. On the father's side, things were a little bit more intimately um, physical. (laughs) I got a whole lot of whippers. Now, I, I don't believe that there's something to, 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 to be bequeathed, you know, to my, to my own kids and things. But uh, Dad did it out of love. He's trying to keep me in control. He did it best he could. Oh, absolutely. Because he knew, you know, first I, I would end up, you know, having an encounter with the police like so many young brothers. Uh, or end up in jail for a long time. I've been to jail many, many, many times. Uh, but not necessarily for uh, uh, hitting teachers or anything. I went in voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. voluntarily. So they were trying to give me a sense of what these protective borders are sure. as a young person, as a human being, and as a young black black boy. So I can appreciate that. But mom, yeah, good God, mom, yeah, mom would mom would read uh, his beautiful poetry and uh, stories to all of us, to, to Clifton and Cynthia and Cheryl, my family. She recently passed away, didn't she? Just passed just a few months ago. She was, uh, yeah, she was first grade teacher, principal. There's an elementary school named after my mother, Irene B. West, right, right outside of Sacramento. Yeah. yeah. No, indeed, indeed. No, very much so. Yeah, she, uh, yeah, she had a sublime love. I tell you, I, I couldn't live three lifetimes to begin think of what it would be like to return the love that she gave me you see so when you have that kind of jump start in life uh, and we know you know those of us who are followers of, of Jesus of Nazareth that you are free you, see, you got something that the world didn't give you and the world can't take away because mom's love is inseparable from that divine love because she was a Christian woman and believed deeply in the power of the good news, the power of love. Yeah, she was something. Mm -hmm. One of the things that strikes me about you in kind of the present day is when I read about your rage as a kid and I see you this way 
talking about your mom, or even after a, a killing of a black man or a protest or something where I know somebody is, news accounts and reporters that come to you and they want to comment. I've watched so many of your responses to just outrageous things, but you are so rooted in love in those responses. I, I just find that remarkable, especially given how you describe your childhood. That's, you're a different person. Well, that's more the public face of me. Oh, all right, all right, I, I all right. Think, I think you could, you could ask. I'm so <laughs> glad to hear this. My wife should tell you about some of my challenges now. But uh, um, that, that, that all of us, just use Tupac as an example, you know. Yeah. You know, all of us got this thuggish side. You know what I mean? Now, I know. I, I don't. I, no, I, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to put that on you too <laughs> yeah, much, yeah. my brother. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't have thug <laughs> life anywhere. <laughs> I, I mean, Luther and Calvin, they're not fully right, but they're leaning in the right direction. In terms, because most of the history of the species, the history of hatred and greed and contempt and hypocrisy and resentment and envy, and here you see the Christian gospel says, "Well, we have these kairos moments of interruption." That's what the cross is about. That cross interrupts that ugly history of crimes and greed and hatred. I mean, it's like what's going on right now in the Ukraine, right? And so the question becomes, then how do we create moments of interruption? So in the face of all the hatred, we got love. Now, I come from a black people who have been chronically hated for 400 years. Told we're less beautiful, less moral, less intelligent. Told we ought to, in order to be successful, you ought to laugh when it ain't funny and scratch when it don't itch and wear the mask in order to negotiate through a mainstream to get some kind of affirmation of a white establishment. That's black success. But greatness, I believe the biblical criteria, he or she is greatest among you, will be your servant. You see, that's what greatness is. And so if you love, black love, in a white supremacist world, is a crime. <laughs> Anybody who falls in love with black people more than likely will be misunderstood, misconstrued, incarcerated, assassinated, murdered, or criminalized. Ask John Brown. Ask John Brown. John Brown's vanilla brother. Love black people more than some black people love themselves. <laughs> you see what I mean? Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. We got some folk. You see? But then we got a whole wave of black love warriors. And this is one of the great contributions of black people. How can you be hated so chronically for 400 years and yet teach the world so much about love? Think about that. See, John Coltrane's love supreme comes from somewhere. You see? Stevie Wonder's love and the need of love comes from somewhere. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Love ethic, Fannie Lou Hamer's love ethic, James Baldwin. What does James Baldwin say? Love forces us to take off the mask we know we cannot live within, but fear we cannot live without. That's love-soaked essays. That's James Baldwin. We ain't got the Tony Morrison's beloved yet. 
You love a child so intensely that you'd rather kill that child than to have that child raped when she's 14 and violated when she's 16 and exploited. You'd rather, because you've been through the same thing. You all know the story of Beloved by Toni Morrison. Thick love, she called it, you see. And we ain't got to Aretha yet. We haven't got to Luther. We haven't got to Ella. We ain't got to Billy Holiday. We ain't got to the Queen of Mall, Sarah Vaughan. What is it about these people? It's not a function of their skin pigmentation because they got a lot of black thugs and gangsters in their community. It's about spiritual formation. It's about ethical cultivation. It's about the willingness to exercise a moral action that can get you in deep trouble to take a risk. And here comes Marcus Garvey and A. Philip Randolph and Ida B. Wells Barnett and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman saying what? I'm going to love these people to such a degree that I'm willing to pay it all. That's kenosis. Christians, kenosis. Empty yourself, give yourself, allow every fiber of your being to be something that can empower other folks. It's like the end of a James Brown concert where he'll go three hours in a row, nonstop, and always in. I'm an extension of you. You're an extension of me. Did anybody come to hear a song we didn't play? You didn't play Soul Power. Hit it, Bootsy. We're going to play the song for this one sister. She came all the way, paid her ticket, coming out of the working class. We going to play soul power like she ain't never heard it before because we come here to serve. That's kenosis. After the concert, you could hardly walk because, you know, I wrote songs with Bootsy, right? Bootsy and I, we traveled the country. And we'd always say a prayer just like you and I prayed before we got out of here, right? We did. We pray with Bootsy and Bernard and all the other towering figures of Funkadelics in Parliament and things. And I know they come out, don't look like they just prayed, but <laughs> no, no, those black brothers prayed at least as long as I was there. But no, Bootsy said they do it all the time because Bootsy played with James Brown and he got it from he, he got it from James. And James is a strong, strong, strong Christian in his own way. <laughs> but that's true for all of us. That's true for all of us. But I mean, I'm, I'm just going on to say that. It's that sense of service. And what, what do you say? We're going to rock this stage in such a way that when these people leave, they're going to feel so empowered that they can take on the world. Isn't that a beautiful way to proceed? You see the shift these days of one of the entertainers? These entertainers, too many of them these days act as if just by showing up, that's the event, just spectacle. You see me? No, sing a song, man. Sing in tune, too. You know what I mean? Hey, this, this ain't about just everybody come to see you. We want to know what you're going to do. We saw it in the Super, we saw it in the Super Bowl in the halftime. Oh, you had a moment of Thomas, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, Althea Gibson, using your tremendous quest for excellence to bear witness on something bigger than just your gifts. But what you got was just spectacle. Look at us. Look at us. Hip-hop has arrived. Hip-hop is now being affirmed by the mainstream. Hip-hop is now, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. This ain't just about success. Black success ain't new. Black success is not success just because the white mainstream say it is. Hey. Sam Cooke, Curtis Mayfield, Sly Stone. Never won a Grammy. Millie Vanilli won two. 
So what about the mainstream? Take your gifts. Take your titles. Take your staff. We here to serve the people. We here to empower the people. This ain't about some success. No, no. Do, do you want to keep doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving it, brother. I love it. <laughs> Me too. It absolutely. Me too. But I tend to go on sometimes, but you Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you funny, man. You really funny. <laughs> In a genuine sense, you know what I mean? You got a little George Carlin, I got a little Richard Pryor. We work it out. We work it out. <laughs> you brought up Toni Morrison's Beloved. Yes, yes, yes. What do you make of that being banned in some, in some circles? What, what's that about? I think it's to be expected. Really? Oh, yeah. What do you mean it's to be expected? It's because, I mean, it's like Plato banning the flute in the Republic. The flute was too much for his Republic. He was too obsessed with order and hierarchy, and the flute can get to you in parts of your body that make things a little bit too uh, uh, disorderly. Uh, and, so it's, and similarly so with the, most of the poets, that the banning of a text uh, you know, is a sign of the power of that text. And the, and the fear and behind And the fear it, right? that it generates. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we ought to be honest. I mean, when Tony wrote The Bluest Eye, which is a powerful text, it was banned at Spelman College. At that's, Spelman? At Spelman. That's is our beautiful, magnificent black sisters. Wow. Because y'all know the story of Bluest Eye. Oh, that hit too deep. That's 1970. This is 50 years ago, you see. But uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield's We're a Winner. They wouldn't play it on any radio stations other than a few black stations. And there were some black stations that got so scared because they got white management. They wouldn't play We're a Winner. Y'all know We're a Winner by Curtis? We're a winner. They never let anybody you know. Keep no, Keep going. <laughs> Oh, if you want a line from Curtis, I can give you one, though. Ooh, one of the coldest lines in the history of modern music. He wrote it for a brother named Gene Chandler called Just Be True. He said, I've given you all of me and plan to give even more, baby. He said, now how are you going to give all of you and plan to give even more. And then he goes, with sweet love and affection and even more's in store, baby. That's kenosis. Giving it all. Intellectually, give it all. Texts, poems, novels, short stories, plays. Eugene O'Neill, Writing, the Iceman cometh right up here in Northern California in Dow House. And his fourth wife, Carletta, said, I could just hear him crying for hours writing about those brothers in Harry Hope's saloon. That profound indictment of an empire that thinks that it could gain the world and not lose its soul, he said. And you think of so many examples like that. But they got banned. 
And they got banned because, you know, we cracked vessels. All of us, you know, we got fears. And right now, with the gangsterization of the country, escalating neo-fascist sensibilities and perceptions and organizations and so forth, that it's predicated on fear. Immigrants, black folk, brown folk, gay brothers, lesbian sisters, non-binary, Jews, Arabs, whoever it is, Palestinians, whoever it is who've been otherized. And uh, the challenge is how to broaden those moments of interruption. But that's not where we're going as a country. We're going to narrow. We're going not to broaden. So, which leads me to this question. Well, we might be broadening the neo-fascists. Well, yeah, the, different. That's yeah, what okay. I was talking yeah, yeah. about. You see what I mean? Yeah. But, but speaking of banning, there's this thing called critical race theory. Everybody thinks they know what that is. Many people are afraid of it, whatever it is. Absolutely. What do you think it is? Well, you know, I was blessed to write the foreword to the text. <laughs> 1992. I was just talking to my dear sister, Kimberly Crenshaw, who, of course, is a great theorist of intersectionality and really the great founder of it in many ways, a co-founder of it. And the important thing is this, and I was telling the precious students, because you know your students here are just high quality, man. They really are. That dialogue. They're the best. Had, uh, you were there. It, was, it yeah. was rich. Yeah. Very much so. But the point is, is that, you know, no one school person, no one framework has a monopoly on truth. That's why the anthem of black folk is lift every voice. But it's not lift every echo. That's part of the genius of the Johnson brothers from Jacksonville, Florida. Lift every echo. No, no. It's lift every voice. Because if you're just extension of an echo chamber, then you're not willing to grow and develop and mature. You see, the education at this grand institution, going all the way back to Sister Mary Hill and those sisters who had the vision to create it, linked to that Church of Nazarene coming down from L.A. that's focusing on the homeless and the poor, building on that genius again of Hebrew scripture, of that hesed too the orphans and widows and the weak and vulnerable, you see, that you have to learn how to listen to others and you have to learn how to broaden your perspective. You know, it's a wonderful letter that uh, the great Henry James wrote to the less great Robert Louis Stevenson. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) That was awesome. What you just said, that was just hilarious. No, but I think it's true, too, because Stevenson's a great writer, but he's not at the same level as Henry James. But the letter was this, 1901. He says, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory. Because the splinter in one's own eyes is the biggest magnifying glass. That's what Adorno says. It comes out of biblical scripture. Mm -hmm. So critical race theory is simply saying, let's see what America looks like from the vantage point of those who were enslaved for 244 years in the Western Hemisphere and over 100 years under this glorious constitution that you all talk about or at least 80 some years and there are some glorious things of words on paper but in practice 
pro-slavery until you had to fight a civil war to break the back of the Confederate army. What does America look like when the Union army wins the war, but after 1877, when the military troops are withdrawn, white supremacy wins the peace? Why is it that Jefferson Davis, who was the gangster who headed the Confederacy, the violent insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government resulting in 750,000 precious lives, each life made valued, human beings made in the image of God. How many years does he go to prison? Less than two. How could that be? How can that be? You got black folk now get caught with a crack bag go longer than that. Who bailed him out? Cornelius Vanderbilt. Why would Vanderbilt bail out Jefferson Davis? He was not pro-South. Oh, they wanted those railroads. They wanted access to those southern markets. They were willing to have black people as sacrificial lambs as they would be subject for 50 years, every two and a half days, some precious black child, a woman, or man hanging from some lynching tree, the strange fruit that southern trees bear that the inimitable Billy Holiday sang about and the Jewish brother Maripole wrote the lyrics of. 50 years, that kind of terrorism. And people say, oh, America, city on the hill, beacon of liberty, last hope of humanity. Well, critical race theory says, we can understand the formulations from your vantage point. But if you look through our eyes, you're going to see something different. You're going to see something very different. Definitely. But you so, see, but, but we had to, what we realized though is that no one set of lens has the full truth. That's so why, the well, challenge. That's why you have to have the dialogue. That's right. what education is about. Um, why, why are we so afraid of it? Well, I mean, you're not afraid of it and I'm not, but we got a lot of brothers and sisters who hasn't got the same memos we got. <laughs> because for them, you know, they see demographic shift. Oh my God. God, these brown folk, these Asians, these black folk, they coming in, they're replacing me. My country is being lost. We need to go back to some kind of greatness. And then here come the gangster Trump himself with his red hat. And I've known Trump for 35 years. He was a gangster then, he's a gangster now. He come running in. Oh, we're going to make America great again. Oh, really? Your precious mama just got off the boat from Scotland. I want her here. But if she followed you, father came from another European. Just got here. I've been here 12 generations. Since when did you become the definitive authority as to who's American or not? Come on, Brother Trump. Come on, Brother Trump. You know you're just playing a reality game, but it's very, 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 very dangerous because we're about to lose what's left of American democracy. This is what it is to deal with neo-fascist escalation. And people say, America can't go fascist. We're on automatic toward a perfect union. Get off the symbolic crack pipe, please. I mean, we got this, when, when, you remember Brother Obama gave a speech in Boston that made him famous. America is a magical place. I said, this brother's going to have a Christopher Columbus experience. 
Ain't nothing magical about America. America is democratic and free to the degree that every generation tries to keep it so and through blood, sweat, and tears fights to make it so. Hey, that's not magic at all. You can lose it. You can lose it. Well, see, he's, but a lot of new voluntary immigrants just get here. Hit the ground running. Oh, my God, all these opportunities and things. And I'm so glad to get away from the repression and what have you. I said, is George Washington your founding? Yes, he is. I'm so glad he found it. If he's your founding father, then the good stuff that you like, you have access to. But the slavery, the evils, that's part of your country, too. You say, well, I wasn't here. I didn't. None of my folk had slaves. Oh. If you arrived in 1945, which part of the Jim Crow bus did you go to? You arrive December 44. Go to Georgia. You walk right up in the front and the black folk in the back. But my folk didn't have any slaves. You're benefiting because of your white skin privilege. You can still become a person of integrity and honesty and decency. That's a moral and spiritual choice. That's open to all of us. But don't act as if you can come into a nation so shaped by white supremacy and not have white skin privilege. When it's time to move out into the vanilla suburbs, you don't have to worry about that covenant that says that black folk can get out there. They don't ask you, which year did your boat arrive? You see, it could have been 1619, you know, that uh, Mayflower, uh, Malcolm used to say, you know, that rock that landed on indigenous peoples, that yeah. rock that landed on right. African peoples, you see. So in that way, critical race theory is simply saying, please try not to be so fearful of the truth because the efficacy of lies is short term. And truth crushed the earth shall rise again. And when chickens start coming home to roost, you've got to be ready. And if all you have is a little thin armor of mendacity that's been hiding some criminality, either you're a candidate for the neo-fascism, you see, or you can come to Point Loma Nazarene University and, and what happens then, Cornell? You got two things. You got two things when you come here. One thing is, if you have anything to do with the churches of Nazarene, you're going to be washed at the blood of the cross that allows you to learn how to die daily so you can emerge a new being full of a love you don't fully understand but touched you so deep that you're willing to be a force for the kingdom. Oh, my. You see. You see. And the second thing is, Based on that rich legacy of Jerusalem, you're going to be tied to those R-O-O-T-S, those roots. But it will enable you to have R-O-U-T-E-S, the routes that can take you to every corner of the world. And you're in conversation with a Gandhi who's a Hindu, a Bell Hooks who's a Buddhist, a dialogue with a Marxist who is atheistic but concerned about poor people and you're concerned about poor people in the name of Jesus. It will allow you to read novels and poems and so forth that will rack your world. 
Rock your world. Turn you inside out. When those howls at the end of Shakespeare's King Lear will shake you in such a way that you'll have an intellectual vertigo and you recognize for a moment your worldview rests on pudding. <laughs> That's what great art can do. And we haven't even got to Beethoven's Ode to Joy. We haven't even got to Duke Ellington's Black and Beige, a Mary Lou Williams' Black Christ of the Antes. That's what happens at its best at Point Loma Nazarene University. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know you've taught at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, University of Paris, uh, Union Theological Seminary. What I've neglected to tell you that this is sort of a job interview. <laughs> the most loving and joyful one I've had in my life. You should know that. <laughs> and it, let me just say, you're doing fine. <laughs> I appreciate that, my brother. So, but I should say this: I think probably the most empowering place I've actually taught is for uh, 41 years in prisons. Why? Because the brothers challenge me, you know, they really do. And none of them are really concerned about letters of recommendation. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no, there no kind of careerist element going on. It's just genuine. It's no resume hits there, going there on. no resumes and things because I kind of specialize in the brothers who are on either death row or are there with, with, with no parole, you see. And so we read Plato. We read Augustine's Confessions. We read their favorite text actually is Waiting for Godot by the Irish genius named Samuel Beckett. Uh, what they going to do with time? What does it mean to be in temporal conditions in which you are fighting to make sure time doesn't use you, but you use time in such a way that you can become a force for good in time, even though you're still in prison. Can remember Kafka says all of us have a death sentence in space and time. That's true. And some of the brothers uh, in those prisons are much freer than many folk I know outside of prison. They still got psychic bondage. They got spiritual bondage, forms of addiction that lead towards self-flagellation and self-destruction. They're just not in prison in that specific way because there's a whole lot of folk in different silos in our society who are deeply, deeply in captivity, spiritually, psychically, personally, ideologically, and so forth, you see. So that... Be, being multi-contextual, which is always more important to me than multicultural. You see, because when you really shift to very different contexts, that's where the challenge takes place. You see, a lot of the dialogue these days about multicultural is multicultural among the professional managerial class. And they got a lot in common. Narcissism, careerism, opportunism, well-adjusted to injustice. Not all of them, but too many of them, you see. Whereas multicultural means, multicontextual means, you know, you're teaching with the kindergartners. You see, they're not worried about letters of recommendation either. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're looking at you, and they want to know how much this brother really care about us, even as he's teaching us 
these little rhymes and things. Well, see, that's, that, that's what teaching in its broader sense is all about, touching folk wherever they are. So if you were in charge of everything. Everything. If you were, and it, it, it just seems like in today's way of dialogue, everybody is sort of spring-loaded on outrage. How would you address the, the polarization, the quick jump to a conclusion, the, the hostility? How, if you were king, how would, uh, not Martin Luther King, if, yeah. if, if you yeah. were king, how would you fix it? Mm. This is the most deaf moment if I rule the world, huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I draw my questions from everywhere. Like, exactly. I yeah, love exactly. Your, your multicultural sources kicking in like this. But, I mean, the, no, I think the first thing I would do is, is that I would disqualify myself as one person, and I would try to bring others in so we would always be collective, always collective. Now, in addition to that, what I would do is, is that I would say, given the crack vessels we all are, that we've got to have uh, forms of education. We've got to have forms of civic life where we focus on the great exemplars of those who came before, not just individuals, but of institutions and movements. You see, So I would make sure that people would gain access to the examples of Irene B. West and Fannie Lou Hamer. How did they still learn how to keep loving in such a dim world? Where did they get this spiritual resource? Dorothy Day, how did you do it, my vanilla sister Catholic? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so that examples then become the kind of uh, a center around which then discussions flow in terms of what virtues are and why is courage the precondition of all the other virtues, the enabling virtue of the other virtues. And, and how do we cultivate courage? Uh, I was just in San Francisco just yesterday. We were talking about Mary Ellen Pleasant. You know, she was the first black woman who's a multi, multi-millionaire in the 1850s. She was before Sister Walker. She married a, a white robber baron. He died and she got his money. You see. And what did she do? She created all these places for the homeless. This is where it overlapped with the Church of Nazarene later on in Los Angeles with uh, the USC press, second president and so forth. Brother Dude, Joseph. you had, you did your homework. You know about us. Oh, no. I've had some dreams about the Church of the Nazarene. Oh, yeah. Anybody concerned about the homeless and the poor and the marginal in the name of Jesus? Oh, you got to keep track now. Oh, Phineas, too. I'm, here he is right here. That's him. No. Yeah. That's him? Yeah, that's him. You got to be kid. No. We talking about you, brother. <laughs> you got to be kid. He, to, to he's been the, checking to us the, out the whole time. To the, to the uninitiated, <laughs> this is our founder right here, Phineas F. Brzee. Right. Isn't that something? 
And he wasn't convinced that the sisters really could pull it off. He was reluctant, wasn't he? He was hesitant. But he said, okay, go on and do it. They asked him to be president in 1902. He said, yeah. Oh, my gosh. You even got the year right. Lord, Lord, Lord. But the thing is about this rule in the world. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. That we would need these examples. Examples. And then it would be the great scientists who provide the breakthroughs of trying to induce evidence to allow us to infer that we can make claims that keep track of the complexity of nature, not by reducing nature to it, it to dominate it and squeeze out all we can for money and greed, but to have an eye-thou relation with nature because we ourselves are continuous with nature. We are natural animals made in the image of a god with a language much more complicated than some, but the elephants also bury their dead just like we do. And they mourn and they cry and they moan. So you think the Latin humando, that's where humanity comes from, from the Latin word humando. And humando means burial in Latin, right? That we are the kind of creatures on the way to the culinary delight of terrestrial worms who bury our dead. to ascribe significance, to connect us, the quick and the breathing, to the dead. And those voices, great examples, not just as isolated individuals, but of networks, of families, and communities, and so forth. I mean, I've always thought that, uh, I mean, if I'm a philosopher of anything uh, tied to love and justice, It's one who has a profound piety when it comes to family. Because piety is not uncritical deference to dogma. (laughs) It's not some kind of uh, 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 uncritical orientation toward doctrine. It is the virtuous acknowledgement of the forces of good in your life to allow you to be the best that you can be. And therefore that piety, the remembrance and the reverence and the resilience and resistance for me is always begins with family. You see, That's why Tony Morrison, Catholic, a lot of people don't talk about Tony Morrison's Catholicism. She was my dear sister. We talked together for 20 years. Went to Mass. Catholic. All of her family. AME. And then like me, funky, Holy Ghost, Baptist. (laughs) That's her family. One from Jim Crow, Georgia. One from Jim Crow, Alabama. She's Catholic. But what is a fundamental theme in her work? Family. 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 What was the first thing that those precious enslaved folk did after emancipation. Thousands and thousands of black people walking on foot to find their loved ones in their families who had been sold from one state to the other. Just imagine that. Imagine that. Out of four million slaves, all these, so many slaves walking, stepping in the name of love. Now I know that might be controversial with R. Kelly these days, but um, 
But he got his genius. He just got some deep, deep problems. But they were stepping in the name of love of not the abstract family. Yeah. Individuals who they loved, who had been sold down the river, sold all the way across the nation. And they wouldn't stop until they found their loved ones. And I'm telling you, when the families, and I don't believe in romanticizing family or idealizing family either. You know, all of us have, have, have wounds and scars and bruises and variety. I've just been very blessed to have very few. But all of us who don't like read Freud and others to know how difficult families can be. Yeah. But it's a beautiful thing when that family love is in place. You know, you, you've been writing about race and politics for decades. And you said back in 1989 hmm. that the lack of good alternatives will yield three kinds of politics. One, remember, this is 1989. Sporadic terrorism for impatient, angry, and nihilistic radicals. Two, professional reformism for comfortable, cultivated, and concerned liberals. And three, evangelical nationalism for frightened, paranoid, and accusatory conservatives. Wow. Wow. You, brother, you've you, done your homework because I, I don't remember, but I wish I'd written something like that. No, no you but, did. Uh, you, I actually did. I appreciate that. No, it, so, you said this in 1989. Are you ever tempted to say, people, I told you so? Lord, Lord. Well, you know, there's a spiritual that comes out of my great tradition. And it says, I keep so busy serving my Lord. I ain't got time to be telling folk what I said back then. You know what I mean? I'm too busy. I got too many things to do. Too much work to be done. And trying to keep my eye on the kingdom that's intervening in a very, very uh, uh, seemingly weak and feeble way. But in many ways, it's as strong as ever. If you have the kind of personal relationship with Jesus that I've been blessed to have all my life. Do you want to address these three things I just brought? I think that they're useful guiding points for the present. Yeah, I think that it makes some sense. (laughs) I do. I think it makes some sense. It's not airproof, you know what I mean? Because there's some hyperbolic, exaggerated language there. No. You? (laughs) Exactly. But but it points in the right direction. It really does. I think what I would add, though, is in our moment of imperial meltdown, when the American empire itself is just being overrun by militarism and materialism and greed and hatred, uh, and spiritual breakdown, which is so sad in terms of indifference toward the vulnerable too often, uh, uh, and thinking somehow that you can do anything without it, you being accountable and answerable, that there's always prophetic fight back. And those three don't fully capture the prophetic fight back. And it comes in all colors and genders and classes. I think I've made that point before. It's not a function 
of your gender, gender orientation. It's not a function of your national identity. It's not a function of your skin pigmentation. It's a, func it's a function of how much courage do you really have when it comes to quest for truth and love of neighbor and love of enemy, which is one people don't like to talk about too much. We got time. Yeah, no, no, because you see, anybody who still has the audacity, like many of us, to try to be disciples of Jesus. You see, this in Bonhoeffer's great text, The Cost of Discipleship. You all remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the brother who tried to, to murder Hitler. Uh, and he wrestled with that. But the, uh, but, but, but the problem is, is that if you really follow Jesus, you're going to have so many enemies that they cannot be your point of reference or you end up your life being a parasite on what they say and do. You'll just be reacting to what they say and do over and over and over and over again. So Jesus tells us, recognize that they are made in the image of the same God that you are. And that they are human. They're not demons and devils. They're on the same human continuum that you are. And no matter how good you think about yourself, there's some elements in them that's inside of you. And if you were in self-denial, you could easily be on the road toward a version of their cold-heartedness and mean-spiritedness as you cloak it in your self-satisfaction. But then beyond that is even those folk far removed from you, they have the capacity to undergo conversion, transformation, and end up much more loving that you give them credit for. So if you run into Malcolm Little in 1945, you say, ooh, I see a gangster. No, no, in, in, in 20 years, he'll be one of the greatest speakers, one of the greatest fearless plain speakers of a concern about the suffering the 20th century produced. You talking about this little Negro right here, Malcolm Little out here pimping and carrying on? That's right. Because he has a capacity to grow, develop, mature, just like you. And of course, the reality is if somebody zeroed in on your life in one of your low moments and said, you think this person got a capacity to be over here being a force for good? What makes you think that? It's because there's always something beyond your own imagination if you are, if you are captive to a certain kind of contempt of them and attempt to impose limits of their potential. God means all things are possible. Even that camel getting through the eye of a needle right after that is what all things are possible. Right. With this God. The possibility of transformation is always there. You never want to I would say Trump, but that's not the right word now. You never want to foreclose. You never want to foreclose people's possibilities and potentialities. You know what I mean? 
We need to start bringing this to a close. But mm. So you have said that there are three fundamental questions that drive you. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be modern? And what does it mean to be American? Have you figured any of those out yet? I think I've made some breakthroughs every once in a while. Absolutely. But the breakthroughs that I've made have built on some of the grand figures that we talked about. Sure. From Socrates to Jesus, Moses and Esther, the Kierkegaard, to Howard Thurman, to Tony Morrison, to James Baldwin, to Curtis Mayfield, uh, all the way up to... Uh, you know, my brother Clifton and Irene and so forth. So that in that sense, you know, there's a wonderful line that Emerson has in his essay on uh, representative men. He says, the, uh, the greatest among us are those who are tied to the quotations because you're continually quoting the best of those who came before because the truths that we talk about are timeless truths that become timely when they are applied to one context and another. Just like the subject matter of this, this magnificent uh, Writers by the Sea thing, we're talking about provocation. See, provocation is the third moment. See, the first moment is vocation. What is your calling? Not your career, not your profession, your vocation and your calling. What's your life task? Not the job that you have. That shapes who you are in terms of your spirit, your soul. But there's no vocation without invocation because you have to understand yourself in relation to a tradition that was in place before you arrived. And America suffers from this isolated individualism. I'm self-made. Well, I guess you gave birth to yourself too. Mm -hmm. I guess you taught yourself your own language. You something else. You must be American. You got to be American. You did it all by yourself. Uh-huh. Go on and live your life of self-deceit and self-deception, but I'm still praying for you. So, so since this is a writer's symposium, do you have some advice for aspiring writers? Just be true to yourself. Be true to the best that's come before. Be true to your vocation so when you enact your invocation, you allow a variety of voice to inform you in such a way that it takes you in places you know not of. Don't determine yourself. That you are unfinished like each and every one and be free. You got to be free. But then when it comes to provocation, let the provocation, just like Chekhov, come by means of your commitment to your own integrity. So it's not cheaply polemical. Because if it's cheaply polemical, your fundamental focus is on somebody else. And if you live your life using this somebody else as a fundamental point of reference, you're not going to grow too much. You're not going to mature too much. You might have one great moment of polemical expression, but you don't have enough spiritual depth that will sustain you in the quest for truth. Because truth is always Janice's face. It's got a variety of different dimensions to it, and some of it cuts home when you're honest. And others of it cuts critically to others. And when you live in a polarizing gangster society like ourselves, 
we're so concerned about what others say, what others think, what others are that you end up doing what? You end up just perennially name-calling and finger-pointing. And you lose sight of who you are. You lose sight of your own memories of your mama and your daddy. They wasn't finger-pointing and name-calling. They were sacrificing with a deep love and blood, sweat, and tears so they could shape you to become a person of integrity and honesty. You don't get that by means of just polemics. No, no. Love is not a parasitic phenomenon. It's not a parasite on the external enemy. No. Love is a cultivation of the inside tied to those who are loving you to allow you to then stretch out. And lo and behold, good God Almighty, once you really stretch out, and that's why that's why flying is probably the major theme of black people. You see, flying home—that's a great short story. Ralph Ellison. You've all read Song of Solomon. Africans flying back to the continent. And in my teaching in prisons for 41 years, what do you think is the anthem of my precious black brothers incarcerated? It's written by a genius. Tuskegee, Alabama. Name is Lionel Richie. And the name of the song is Zoom. Zoom, y'all know that song. I like to fly away. Well, I like to fly away. Well, I like to fly away. Zoom, zoom, baby. Freedom dreams. That's what Lionel's talking about in that song. That's the anthem of the brothers in prison for my 37 years. And I always bring, try to bring music in. What you want to hear? I'm bringing some more little music. I give a little Stephen Sondheim, you know. Listen to No More from Into the Woods. Section 2. Once upon a time, end up with happiness. That's Act 1. Act 2. Cinderella gets the prince, find out he don't have too much going on. That's the genius of Sondheim, bringing that tragic and tragic comic, shattering the Disney World mentality of so much of American culture and American theater, you see. But the freedom dreams of Zoom, Lord have mercy, it's such a beautiful song, but it takes you away, not in the form of escapism, but to get some critical distance so you can refortify yourself to become a better freedom fighter and love warrior. That's what so much of the best of the flying away. And in the black church, of course, it's some glad morning. When this life is over? Yes, it is. I'll fly, fly, fly away in the morning when I, I die. die. Hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Cornell West, ladies that's and gentlemen. That's it. That's it. There it is. Lord, 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 Lord. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.